Well, thanks for letting me worship with you guys. I love being at my home campus. I love Lake Mary. It's a really special place. But one of the themes of the last couple of summers that has been so good for my heart is seeing God at work in other parts of the town and other parts of the world. So being here today and worshiping with you is really good for me. I love worshiping with other parts of our Summit family. But then later I'll get to go to Herndon and worship with our family over there. Later this summer, we'll be going to Malawi. Katie, my friend over here, we're gonna be going to Malawi for a couple of weeks at the end of July. And just seeing God at work in the world has kind of been a theme of the summertime for me, a renewal of what he's doing. So thanks for being a part of that even this very morning. Another thing that's been super helpful this morning uh, is Gary and I are in the same room together, uh, which is really great, but we get confused for each other. Like, Gary, why don't you come up here for just a second? I just need an object lesson, just because this is really confusing. Like, I'll be at Target and Waterford Lakes and people will call me Gary. This is Gary. Yeah. I'm OJ. Yeah. I know it's, it's hard because we look almost, right? If you're like, what, what? Whoa. Yeah, yeah. thanks, Gary. Now? You can leave now. Okay. I've made you as uncomfortable as I possibly can for one morning. That was my only goal, so we'll go ahead and pray and wrap it up now. Um, but uh, I'm just really glad to be here. Gary's been a great friend and mentor and, and, and buddy for a long time, and we like to be able to have fun with each other. But being able to do this work together is awesome. Uh, question for you, uh, what do you get passionate about? Is there something in your life that you kind of get stirred up about? Maybe the question is better is like, is there something that you spend a lot of your time getting into or even defending that you are a little bit surprised in yourself? Um, the reason I ask this is because I tend to stay kind of neutral. I kind of want to include everybody. I like to kind of like listen to what everybody has. I can pray pretty neutral on politics on a lot of things, but I have found myself irrationally spending a lot of time defending my food choices, right? Like what I like to eat in my favorite restaurants. And a lot of this has come to head with my dad recently. You here in this part of town live in one of the greatest places in the whole world, the birthplace of Huey Magoo's. And if you've had Magoo sauce, you know this is one of God's gifts to the whole world, right? Magoo sauce is amazing, but my dad is still stuck on Zaxby's. Now listen, I know Zaxby's is fine, right? Like maybe some of you really love Zaxby's. My wife grew up in Georgia Southern, was the birthplace of Zaxby's. But once you've had Magoo sauce, and if you haven't, they're open on Sundays. Chick-fil-A isn't, but they are. Um, you might wanna check it out. It's not very big, get there fast. Um, but once you find something better, I will spend a lot of my time defending that. Like my dad and I don't disagree about much, but this is one of the things. It reminds me like earlier on in life, like when Chipotle came to town, right? And I'm like, Taco Bell will always be better than Chipotle, right? I mean, I spent a lot of time defending the burritos grande and like my, my Doritos Locos Tacos. And then you have Chipotle, you're like, well, I guess we know who won. Um, but what is it? What is it? Is there something in your life that you get stirred up about, that you spend are passionate about? Maybe, maybe for you, that's your college, right? Like we're in the middle of UCF country over here. I was very gently corrected the last time I was here because I mentioned my beloved Gators um, where I went. Um, but I was very firmly reminded that this is Night Nation. This is where the national championships happen, right? So maybe you're part of Night Nation, but maybe some of you are quietly with me. You're part of Gator Nation or maybe you're Knoll Nation. Maybe there's a school you're part of. Maybe you're like Orlando City, right? Like you're part of that Orlando City Nation, Orlando magic. You're proud of the teams that we have in town. Maybe it's just our city, right? We live in a great town and maybe you spend a lot of time kind of, you know, talking about Orlando, telling your friends how great it is, all the amazing things that we have going on here. Uh, maybe it's just your particular city, right? That you live in Waterford Lakes or the kind of your town you're in. You love talking about it, telling other people. Maybe it's our church, right? We go to a great church. You love telling people about it. You get passionate about it. You want people to know how great it is of what God is doing in this place. Uh, maybe for you, maybe you're part of Mom Nation, right? Like your world revolves around kids and like you, you write blogs, you read blogs, and that is kind of your whole life. Maybe you're in Messy Mom Nation, right? Like it'll all just work out at the end of the day. It'll all, we're just gonna embrace the mess and kind of move towards it. 
Um, maybe for you, like it's work nation, right? Like you're like all brushed up on LinkedIn. Maybe you can show me how to use that later. Um, but like you're like, you work. I mean, I'm amazed at how good some of you guys at your jobs and do like incredible things. Like I'm floored every time I talk to people about how good they are. So maybe you're just really productive, right? Like you're part of that group. Or maybe it's just your kids, right? You're in kid nation. Everything is revolving around what your kids are in. So like you go sport to sport, you kind of jump in on all of that. My, my guess is, is that all of us are part of something, right? We identify with something that's bigger than ourselves. And we're probably a little bit proud of it, right? There's something we'll defend, we'll take some time and we'll invest some energy in because we are a part of something bigger. Today, uh, we're gonna be talking about a great nation that's in the past. It's called Edom. And the people of Edom had great pride in their country. And, and for a lot of good reasons, there was a lot of good things happening in Edom. And today we come to the book of Obadiah. We're in this series of summer where we're looking at the minor prophets, which just means shorter prophecies. They were words written by God many years ago that are still very applicable to us today. And Obadiah, thankfully for me, is the shortest book in the whole Old Testament. So I only had 21 verses to read, so I got to read it a few times. It's written by someone, um, we actually don't know much about it. One of the really interesting things about Obadiah, some of the prophets, we learn a lot about them, we know a lot about their story. Uh, but Obadiah could either be a person or it could be a like an explanation of a person, sort of a, a, a definition of who this is, because Obadiah means worshiper of God or faithful servant of God. So this could have just been a description of someone who is very humble and a servant of God, or it could be a person. There are many Obadiahs mentioned throughout scripture. But here's the thing, it doesn't really matter to know much more about him because this is a prophecy from God. This is God's word being delivered to people. And so the messenger doesn't matter. Anybody that was humble enough to take God's message to another group of people could have been the Obadiah, could have been the deliverer of this message. Uh, one of the things I've come to appreciate uh, kind of about prophecies and listening to them this summer is if you wanna know if a prophecy is worth looking at and really listening to you, is it more about the prophecy or the prophet, right? There's a lot of times the people that are giving it will get built up, but is it really the word of God? And this, he wants to make sure we know this is God's message to the people. And I think one of the reasons I've become really uh, drawn to Obadiah this summer is one of my favorite characters in the whole Bible is John the Baptist. And I remember the first time when I really heard his description because John's got it going on. He's got people getting baptized left and right. He is the center of everything going on. When someone says, are you the Messiah? Are you the one who's to come? He says, I I'm not even worthy to tie his shoes. I'm not even worthy worthy to bow at his feet. He, he had such a clear idea of who he was in the scale of things. And that seems to be who Obadiah is. To kind of put it in reference, this took place here after the split. So we've got the Northern Kingdom of Israel and the Southern Kingdom of Judah. And so Obadiah is found here in the Southern Kingdom and there is enmity, there is a fraction, and there is a lot of stuff going on between Judah and Edom. Judah and Edom. These two countries, they've got a long history, but at this time, there is a lot of conflict happening between them. And to understand the division between them, to understand what's going on between them, it goes back to a bowl of soup, as most national conflicts do. So we should probably dig into that just a little bit, right? Um, we're going to talk about some people you may be familiar with. It starts with Abraham and Sarah. Abraham, father of the nations. He has a covenant with God. God is going to deliver his people through Abraham. Abraham and Sarah, they're married later in life. They have kids. They have Isaac. He marries Rebecca, other great biblical characters are there. But then they have two children. They have Jacob and they have Esau. And it's important to kind of understand that even before they were born, while they were still in the womb, things had already started stirring up between them. So hear this from Genesis chapter 25, verse 22. It said, the babies jostled each within her, within Rebecca. And she said, why is this happening to me? So Rebecca went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb 
and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red and his whole body was like a hairy garment. One of my favorite descriptions, right? So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob, which means wrestler. It means he was in contention there. So there's conflict from the beginning, from the, before the beginning, before they're born, while they're in the womb, things are stirred up. Esau was the stronger of the two. He was the hunter. He was the one who was going out and getting things done. Jacob tended to stay home and closer to the family, but Jacob was the cunning of the two. Jacob wants to take Esau's right. Jacob was, or Esau was the older son, which means that he had the birthright. He got the inheritance. He got the power. He got everything that was going to be happening, but Jacob wanted it. So one day Esau is out hunting. He comes back and he's famished. And Jacob says, well, I'll trade you this bowl of soup, this stew I have here, if you'll just give me your birthright. And Esau says, I am so hungry, I'm going to die. What does it matter if I give up tomorrow? Because if I don't eat that stew right now, I'm going to die. And he gives it all up. And I know when I read that, I thought, that's crazy. But how many times have you said, I think I'm literally going to die right now if I don't eat, right? I'm so hungry, I could die. I mean, you're probably feeling that right now. I'm looking at the time, so we'll move. Um, but he trades it over and the enmity continues, right? There's continued to bash heads because he's given up something very important to him. And, it's, and it keeps going on generation after generation. And it's kind of hard to put in the modern context. The best thing I could find was sort of the Hatfield and the McCoys. If you've heard that story, it started and then generation after generation of family keeps fighting. They don't even know where it started from, but they just know it keeps going. And this is where we find ourselves with Judah and Edom. And Judah comes from Jacob, which is really helpful because they had the same first letter. The country of Edom comes from Esau. And these are used interchangeably often, Jacob and Judah and Esau and Edom in the scriptures. So though these two countries, these two nations are at odds with each other, they are still brothers. They have family ties. And you know, no matter how messy family gets, it's still family. They were meant to care for each other. They were still meant to look out for each other. And Edom, Edom not only doesn't look out for Judah, not only doesn't look out for the family that's there, Edom actively takes advantage of Judah. When the Babylonians come in and some of the most unspeakable things are happening as I'm reading the history of this, just terrible things are happening to the people. Edom doesn't just stay up on their hill and sort of look down and, and, and the, they were actually in the city cheering on all of the awfulness happening, looting, taking possessions from them. They were part of what was going on. And so now we come to Obadiah, this prophet who comes to bring a message to Edom, to this country that has done wrong. Usually prophecies are delivered to God's people to change, but this is delivered to Edom themselves, the ones who are in the wrong. So Obadiah takes this message, and we're going to actually hear the whole message today. It's the book of Obadiah is one chapter. Like I said, it's the shortest chapter in all, in the whole book, in all of the Old Testament. So we have time to read through today. So if you have your phone Bibles or you have your Bible with you, I would encourage you to pull it out and follow it along. It's about 20 verses. It's great that we'll actually get to hear a whole book of the Bible this morning. It might help to follow along, but you're welcome to listen in as well. There are excerpts from it on the back of your bulletin if you find that helpful as well. But this is Obadiah chapter one of one. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? 
Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves come to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, Tamon, will be terrified and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof, while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. Verse 15, the day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy and Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire and Joseph a flame. Esau will be stubble. And they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau. And people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria. And Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau. And it ends with this and the kingdom will be the Lord's. On first reading, this isn't the most cheeriest of scriptures, is it? Um, and I'm going to be honest, on about reading four or five, it doesn't get much better. But by about eight, it starts to get a little bit better. I remember when they asked me, hey, what minor prophet do you want this summer? And I was like, I don't know. I mean, any of them are fine, right? I'm going to have to learn about them anyway. And then uh, they, my friends know me. They know I like to like, have a good time and maybe tell a couple funny stories and get serious later on. And then Gary gives me 21 verses of destruction. So thanks, Gary and Zach, for that. Um, But there's a lot more going on than what is first there when you kind of first read the first brush of what's happening there. And and it's a really timely message for us. And in fact, as I spent more and more time with it, it feels a little bit cringeworthy in its timeliness. You see, Edom had it going on. They were in a great location. They were high up on the mountains. They were defensible. They had a great like physical location where they are. They had plenty of money. They were known for their wisdom and their knowledge, the wise men of Edom. They were indomitable. They, they ruled with a lack of concern with others. As they're put on trial on this, we hear that they just are more concerned with themselves. They have a very, very strong national identity. And it seems to be getting stronger by the day as he's talking to them. And you can hear it here in verses three and four. It says, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights, you who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? They had great pride 
and who they were, but they had forgotten their neighbors. They'd forgotten their actual family, their, their family down at the bottom of the hill. They had become more concerned with themselves and their neighbors weren't just neighbors, they were actually family in the midst of it. Does any of that sound familiar? As I was sitting with it and kind of looking around where I live and how the world is right now, it felt very familiar. I mean, it's not a one for one for where we are today, but it's not far off. I mean, we live in the most prosperous country in the most prosperous time in all of human history. And when I look at the numbers, just to be sitting here where we are, we're in the top 95, 97% of the world's wealth, right? Just by the very fact of where we are, we live in an incredible nation with incredible freedom, with incredible opportunity, right? Wealth, even though if we don't experience it personally all the time, corporately, it is there in great numbers. We are known around the world for our knowledge and wisdom. When I visit, especially with friends in Africa, they talk about our ingenuity and the way we engineer and the way we think through problems. We are known around the world for that. And we have this very strong national identity and it seems to be getting stronger and stronger by the day. And there seems to be a growing sense of caring more for our own interests than for our neighbors. Now, I wanna make it clear, I'm not saying that God is about to smite us as a country. That's not this sermon. If you came for that, you're in the wrong place. But I do wanna say this. Um, God has always taken pride very seriously, whether that's individual or corporate pride, and he still does. And, and when I got to that part of the scripture, not only just kind of looking at what's around of where I am and where we are, what they're most on trial for, what Edom, the people of Edom are most on trial for is their pride. Listen to this in verse three. The pride of your heart has deceived you. The pride of your heart has deceived you. And when I read that, when I read it, when I heard it for the first time, I mean, it hit me in the gut because pride is at the middle of who I am. Pride is the thing that has always been the core of where my sin comes from and the ways that I disobey God and all those things. I like to think of myself as trying to be humble and I work hard at it. Like I, I try to be in an active posture of humility, but I know that at my core pride, the idea that I know better than God, that I elevate myself above him is where so much happens. I remember the first time that had really um, hit me in this uh, was, uh, was with a counselor friend. I had just moved to town and he was in school at the time. He said, hey, you mind if I do a little homework on you? Mind being my guinea pig? And I learned I get what I pay for. Um, but yeah, so I did some work with him, right? He was, I did some, some career counseling with him and it was awesome. And he told me, asked me to tell my story and I tell it. And he looked at me, he goes after me, he's like, man, you're prideful. I'm like, what? I'm like, oh, and I, it took me. I'm like, what are you talking about? And I really honestly didn't have any idea what he was talking about. He's like, do you hear how you talk about yourself? You did this, you accomplished this, you got yourself here, you'd made all this happen. He's like, you didn't mention your family or the people that poured into you or the church that was around you or how God took care of you. You talk about you. And for the first time I had a mirror up to my pride of how I really did view myself above that, that I was me. I'm pulling myself up out of the bootstraps. There is nobody else out there. And I had to look at it, the ugly truth of it for the first time to work on it. That is not, what is going to define me forever, right? But it is always going to be there and something that I have to acknowledge that is there. And that is where Eden found themselves. They were prideful. They were, had pride in their position. They had pride in the stature where they sat in the world and their position in the world. They were on top of it. They had incredible stature of what was going on. They had pride in their place. They were high in the mountains. They were defensible. They had a great location and they had pride in their possessions, their wealth, their knowledge. They suffered from pride as I suffer from pride, and pride is the deadliest of those sins, right? Pride is at the core of all of it. Pride is where it all stems from. 
you think back to the beginning, Adam and Eve, they had an, a great situation, right? God loved them so much. He gave them the perfection of creation and everything they need. Just, just do what I say. Just don't try to know more than me. Just stay away from the knowledge of good and evil. Stay away from the tree. Just the one thing, don't think you know more than me. And what do they do? Of course, they have to eat the fruit. They have to take the step above God and put themselves above it. And you see the story of Israel over and over and over again. Things go well and they're falling under God's guidance. And all of a sudden they think, well, we know better now. We'll just do it on our own. And things fall apart over and over and over again until Jesus comes to the cross. And it's what drove him to the cross as well, us elevating ourselves above God. And God sends a message to Edom. He sends them a clear message that judgment is coming for their actions. There are consequences for the ways you have lived in verses six through 10, but how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors will be terrified and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame and you will be destroyed forever. They had forgotten who they were. And maybe even more importantly, they had forgotten whose they were. This is a very consistent theme throughout the Bible. One of the reasons we're doing these minor prophets, one of the reasons we've been in the teaching series we've been in the last couple of years is we want you to hear a very consistent voice of God throughout the whole story of God. God has always been on the same vision and he's always been on the same mission for his people. He has always been calling people to himself for thousands of years from the beginning of time, gathering people to worship him, to follow him. He loves us. He wants his people to be on display for the world. And our tendency is always to then turn inward to elevate ourselves above him, to worship the blessing, the good things instead of the one who has given them and to forget those around us on the way. But God has always called his people to turn attention to him alone and to welcome the stranger and care for his brother. I mean, in the earliest of days, God has been saying the same thing over and over again. It's not just for you, it's all of it, it's all of it. So who are we and who was Edom? And who was Israel? Who were these people of God? They were people made by God, created in his image to care for others. They were people created in the image of God to care for others that were created in that same image. And whose are we? And who was Edom? God's. It's always been God. We've always been his. Whether Edom acknowledged it or not, God is ultimately in control. And God is reminding them of that. If you remember the three Ps from earlier that, that Edom had put their pride and their trust and their faith in, their position, their place, and their possessions. The thing is only God sits in the highest position. There are no other gods before me. Only God sits in the highest place. He has been seated at the heights of heavens from the beginning of time and will continue to be there forever. And everything is God's possession. It's all his. It's anything we have is on loan to us. We are at best stewards of the good things he has given. And judgment is coming against Edom. It is clear. Edom will be gone. And if you need proof of that, think about the last time you ate at an Edomite restaurant, right? They are gone. They are dust. They are memories. But all nations someday will be gone, right? As I was thinking back and across all of the great empires and nations that we studied growing up or maybe still studying in school, the Ottoman Empire, the Roman Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Qing Dynasty, the Mongol Dynasty, where are they now? Dust, rubble, memories, history books. 
verse 15. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. And it's not just nations. It's you and I. It's all of us. See, another consistent voice of God throughout time is the seriousness of sin, the consequences of it. He's a good father. And good fathers know the ravages of disobedience and of pride and of sin. Listen, my days are filled with corrections. I have three kids and they're wonderful. I've got a nine-year-old daughter and a seven-year-old daughter and a four-year-old boy, but this is the season of boundaries and corrections and teaching, right? I have been given stewardship of their lives and it is exhausting, right? Some of you are in the middle of it with me. Some of you are well beyond and I've seen you made it, so it's great hope for me that there's hope out there. But I don't need them to obey me because I need it. It doesn't make me feel, but I mean, let's be honest, it feels a little good, right? But that's not the end of it. I don't need them to obey me because it lifts me up. I know what's waiting on the other side of disobedience. I know what's waiting on the other side. I know the ravages of sin. And I'm guessing you do too. And I want them to be able to avoid as much of it as they can, to learn when they need to learn. And God is the same way. He knows what's best for us. He's always known what's best for us. And he's a good father and a loving father. But he knows the pain that's waiting there. And we know as fathers that boundaries are good and that obeying God ultimately, and, and for now, my kids, while I have them, that for them to obey now, to learn obedience, will be for their ultimate good. Because I know what's waiting on the other side of it. I know the pain that's sitting there and I've walked through that and God knows that for his people in Edom. Verse 15, the day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. There are natural consequences to our brokenness. There are natural consequences to disobedience and pride and disobeying. And God's desire for us is to do good and to be good for those around us, to follow him well. It's no mistake that the country that we're talking about today is Edom, but in Hebrew, the name is Adam. It's the same name as Adam, Adam. It's the same name that we use for humanity in Hebrew. Edom is the perfect picture of humanity, of our human nature, the ways that we are wired that we are wired to look inward, that we think about ourselves about others, that we have a lack of care for others. They're the picture of what humanity looks like without a God to lift them out of it. And God says that judgment will come, that there will be natural consequences for that brokenness. And though that can seem like harsh news and really bad news, right? Because we all carry pride and we all are broken. There is hope. And that is one of the great things about having the time to spend with Obadiah. There is great hope that is found in here because at the end, he reminds Israel that they will be saved. The ones who are in oppression, the ones who are refugees, the ones who are hiding out as the world is falling apart around them as they're trying so faithfully to follow him and everything seems bleak. He says, no, you will be saved. There is better coming. There is something above what is happening now that is gonna happen. We hear in Joel, one of the other minor prophets, that Israel will be saved, that his people will be saved. There's such hope for them, that there will be a new citizenship and a new kingdom and it will be preserved, that the nations of this time will go that a new nation will rise and God will gather those who followed him and lift them up out of the mess and the muck and the mire and give them something new. But what about Edom? What about these people who God is sending this message to? Is there hope for them? That was one of the things I struggle with so much too. It's like, is there hope even for the people of Edom? And I was so encouraged to find out that there is. Amos, one of the other prophets, chapter nine, verses 11 to 12 says, in that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord who will do these things. There is hope 
even for people of Edom. Because a nation is just a group of people and people have the opportunity and the choice to turn back to God. We always have that decision. We have a choice of how to respond when we hear the news. We have the choice of what happens when we hear God's voice and we see ourselves for who we truly are. And the promise is that for those who heard the prophecy, the promise is that for those who hear God's voice and turn toward him, they would be saved and be citizens of a bigger kingdom than anything they could have ever imagined. It's the same promise for you and I today because that's us. That's you and I, though judgment is coming, though sin is serious, God's heart has always been for restoration for his people. It's always been that. It's for invitation to be a citizen in his kingdom, his nation, the one that will last forever and ever. This is the consistent voice of God that sin is serious, that judgment is coming, but there's a way out. There is hope. And we hear it again in Paul as he's sharing this message with the early church, Romans 3.23 that all have sinned, that we've all in the middle of it, that we're all in the same boat. And that Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin, the natural consequences of this is death and separation from God. But it doesn't end there because in Romans 10.13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. There is hope. So how do we move through it? We're gonna end on this. Three ways to move through this. The first is this, to repent. Turning back to God. It's owning up to our pride. It's owning up to the broken places that are within us. When we see it, it's to own up to it, to look at it and to turn back to God. Because acknowledging God for who he is and turning back to him. And for some of you, maybe you've never taken the opportunity to do that. Maybe this is the first time for you to look at it and to turn towards him. But for many of us that have been following him, maybe it's the millionth time, right? It is an ongoing process as we see ourselves, as we see the brokenness there, to continually turn back to God, to repent for the ways that we are, that the brokenness there, and to turn back to God, repent. And the second is to remember, to remember that God is God and only God is God. This is the posture of humility, of placing God above us, of placing God at the top of everything that's going on in our life. It's recognizing the gift of life and of breath and of the blessings that are there, that it's all from God. It's not just our own work, that God has taken care of us. It's active humility. It's an active seeking of him both in the good times and the hard. I don't know about you, but I oftentimes can see God easier in the harder times than in the good times. I often want to credit it to myself in the good times and turn away, but it's all of it. It's this active seeking. One of the things that we've tried to do as a family, and I know a lot of people have tried to do over time, is a simple question of how did you see God at work today? Right, an easy one that you can kind of incorporate. How did you see that active seeking of how he was at work today, even in the hard times? How is God at work? Actively seeking him, remembering that God is God. And the last is to remember to draw back together with his people. If part of your pride and part of your brokenness has been separation from your brothers in need, we need to draw back in. We need to remember, to come back together, to put things back together to right. And that's something that we're invited to do now. It's something we can do right now that God actually cares about how we treat those around us. It's not like a theoretical that God cares about how we treat each other. There's an actual practical that he cares about how you treat your family and your neighbor and your kids and the people that you see at the store. They're a tangible caring is part of what Eden was put on trial for. Part of this letter is also a legal judgment against them for not caring for those around them. And God says, I care about that. You need to care for those that are around you. They were on trial for their lack of care. So where does that start? It starts with looking, it starts with seeing, it starts with actively looking at those that are around you. Maybe that's your first step, right? To see those around you, to see your neighbor, to see the people that are around you in your daily life. You, every single one of you has been put in a completely unique position to reach people. That is one of the incredible things that I love about church, that every one of you has a different place that you are in life. And God has put you there exactly to be with the people you need to see them. 
pride, pride is looking inward and seeing ourselves. But remembering humility is about seeing the other. It's about noticing. And Jesus gives us that model over and over again. Jesus was almost jarring in how much he notices people, right? Zacchaeus is up in the tree just to kind of check Jesus out. And Jesus goes, Zacchaeus, not only come down from the tree, not only do I know your name, but come have a meal with me. He, he notices him so deeply. Or the woman caught bleeding. She just wants to touch him and be healed and sneak off in the crowd. And Jesus says, stops and listens to her whole story in the midst of all this going on that he takes time to see and hear and notice her. He gives us this model of noticing and remembering starts with seeing. And it moves into inviting those who are far away back into relationship with you and with us as the church and the God. If you know the good news of God and the hope that is there is to invite people back in because you see people every day that have no hope. There is not much left in the world and you are agents of hope for those that are around you and God has placed you in those lives on purpose. And then also caring for those whom God has called us to. I love that as a church that we're pouring into caring for vulnerable children, that we're digging into caring for those who are fostering, that we're pouring into our local schools. My encouragement would be to you over these next few years, we're gonna have a high level of calling as God stirs within you, take steps, don't wait too long. I know Rachel and I are part of a, a care community that's launching today. And it's been just so good for us to take the step. Even though we weren't quite sure of everything going on, we knew we needed to do something and get involved. Take the step as God stirs within you. The last verse of Obadiah is the kingdom will be the Lord's. The kingdom will be the Lord's. This is good news. God will be in control. And a new kingdom is coming and you're invited and it matters and you matter, and what you do with your life matters, now and forever. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that you invite us into a relationship with you, that you have plans and purposes for us, that you care so deeply for us, your children, that you have created us in your image, that you have crafted each and every person here, and you know us, and you know our natural wiring. You know the ways that we go astray. You know the things we do and the patterns that we exist in, the pride that we carry in all the different ways, Lord, but yet you still have a plan and a purpose. You've always been coming after us. You've always provided a way that your hope has always been to gather people to you, to give us life, to give us hope and to be a light for others. God, help us to take the steps we need towards you. God, to repent, to turn from the things that are there that we see in ourselves and the places you reveal and to turn back to you and to remember that you alone are God at the top of each and everything that we need to be in an active position of remembering and then to remember with our brothers and sisters in this world, God, to invite people in to care for those you've given us the care for. God, that it all matters, that every act, that everything we've ever done, you say it, it matters. So God, help us, help us individually to take the steps we need to take, whether that's first steps towards you or millionth steps, whether that's caring for someone who is right outside as we leave this place today or that lives next door, whatever it is you call us to individually. God, and I pray that as we do that, we would see your light shine as a church, that we would be a beacon on a hill, that we would be such good news for those around us that people would not be able to look away because they see hope here. God, thank you for the people of Waterford Lakes at Summit. God, I pray that you would be continue to bless them. Thank you for the steps they have taken and the light they are to the world. Help us to continue to be the church together. We pray all this together in your son's name. Amen.